Okay, well, let's turn in our Bibles. If you have brought your Bible or you got the app on your phone, whatever it may be, it would be Matthew chapter 5. We're working in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to start beginning in the Beatitudes today, Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. We're going to start that today and work on that uh, later next week as well, so we'll only get a little way through that this week. I want to talk about what Jesus or who Jesus spoke to in this. And I mentioned last week that he spoke to the disciples. At the beginning of the sermon, he had assembled his disciples up on a hill. By the end of it, in chapter seven, it said that there was a whole crowd there. Remember I said that, well, the beginning, there were just the disciples there. And he's talking to the disciples And it struck me that I never defined what a disciple was. Now, I defined who they were. They were the 12 and maybe even the 70, the people that were following him that answered the come follow me part of the story early on in early Matthew, early uh, Mark and Luke, and then, of course, in John. But what is a disciple? A disciple is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of definition around that, but that's all it is. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, devoted to that, you are a disciple. Let me give you an example. Did you hear two weeks ago when the Cessna plane coming from the Bahamas to South Florida, the pilot went unconscious? Did anybody hear that story? Yeah. Okay, so let me tell you the story. So two guys in a a Cessna single engine, those are the small planes, Coming from the Bahamas, there was a pilot and there was a passenger. Because there was only two people, the passenger was sitting in the right seat, which is also known as the co-pilot seat. So everything was in front of him. I've sat there many times. I don't have a clue what to do. The pilot's on the left seat. The pilot went unconscious. Unconscious. They didn't say why. Did he have a stroke, a heart attack? They didn't. That wasn't a part of the story. He's unconscious sitting there as they're flying over the ocean, heading westward, halfway between the Bahamas and South Florida. So the guy calls whoever he can reach, and eventually it reaches the FAA tower in West Palm and says, the pilot is down. I've never flown a plane. What do I do? It's amazing, isn't it? I've thought that when I've sat in the right seat of a Cessna. I may not do that again. (laughs) And the guy on the other side says, just wait a minute, I'm gonna get an expert on Cessnas. And one of the FAA tower uh, air controllers was an expert on Cessnas. He happened to be on a break. They got him up back into the tower and they found this guy and this guy was just east of Boca Raton, where we are. He was heading, they might've been heading to the Boca airport, I don't know. And he says, just head west, find land, and I'll tell you how to turn and just turn. We haven't located yet. And then they found him and they turned him. They wanted to bring him into Palm Beach International because it's got the biggest runway, the widest runway, the longest runway for this little plane to land. These, these planes can land anywhere, but he wanted the biggest. And it's interesting that if you see the pictures and someone took the pictures, a video of this plane landing, the plane landed perfectly. When you see the plane landing, it's not one of these bouncing things. He just lands it and it comes to a stop. It was such a good 
landing, the other plane, the jets that were waiting, they closed the airport down, obviously. So the American Airlines pilot who was standing, uh, the plane was standing on the uh, tarmac, said, why did we have to wait for a Cessna? Usually the bigger planes, jets have priority. And he goes, the guy didn't know how to fly. And the pilot of the American Airlines said it was a perfect landing. Why was it so? Because the FAA tower guy knew exactly what to tell the novice what to do. And the novice did exactly what he was told to do. Had he not, he would have either crashed the plane or crashed the plane and killed himself and the unconscious pilot next to him. But because he did exactly what he was told, it landed. That is what a disciple is. That man, for those 30 minutes, was wholly devoted to the voice on the other side. Do you see that? Never met him, didn't know what he looked like, but he was wholly devoted to that FAA controller because that FAA controller knew how to get him on land and he did not know how to get on land. That is what a disciple is. Now, let's define it. We use the five C's here at church. We do this in church lead. We do it in our discipleship training. The five C's, I didn't come up with these. A guy named Malcolm Weber came up with them, and he's a friend of our church, and so we started using them. But the first one is this. A disciple loves and obeys Christ. The first C is Christ. We are disciples of Christ. Many people are disciples, and you can be a disciple of anything. You can be a disciple at your gym. You can be a disciple of certain authors. You can be a disciple of certain dead people that wrote great things. You can be a disciple of anything. You can even be a disciple of yourself and kind of have self-discipleship. But a disciple, as the Bible defines it, and as we're going to look today, is a disciple of Christ, Jesus Christ. Number two. The next C is calling. We understand and live out our calling. And you'll remember that I talk about this all the time, that God has called us, and think of a two by four, called us to him, by him, for him. He called us to him, by him, for him. In other words, we are called by God. Every single person who is a disciple of Christ, that's a follower of Christ, has been called by God. And they've been called to two things. One to himself, that's all of us. And another is called to do something. And that is different. Your calling is different than their calling, which is different than their calling, which is different than my calling. And what that does is brings an equality to discipleship. In other words, people come to me sometimes, this is amazing. They'll come to me and go, hey, Bill, great job today. You are the best blah, 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 blah. And then they go, Clay, you're the best, blah, 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 blah. And what I always say to them is, do you know it took 100 people to make this morning happen? It's actually more than 100 people. There are 100 people that have either done things, doing things, or will do things that allows us to have this service. There were people in the parking lot. There are people at the door. There are people in the back. There are people that are greeting you. There are ushers. There are dozens and dozens of people taking care of the 150 or 160 kids that are around these rooms behind us. There's a cave in the back there. We call it the cave. It's a room with no windows that makes all this electronic stuff work. 
There's six or seven people down there. Then there's the 15 or 18 people here. Then there's people behind me that are running the live stream so that you all have the live stream. And then I get up here and you say, wow, great job, Bill. I'm thinking, yes, but there's also the prayer people that come forward. There's the people at the end in the back that are greeting you as you leave. You see, it's not about me. I'm using my gift. Everybody else is using their gift, and that makes us have a great church, doesn't it? Because we're all using our calling. And one calling is not better than the other. One calling may be louder, maybe more upfront, maybe more seen, but I tell you what, if the guys in the back shut my mic off, a lot of good mic calling would be right now. I'd be screaming and yelling if, you know, they didn't come in and turn the air conditioning on and the lights on back at six o'clock this morning when there's a whole group of people that show up. If the people hadn't prayed all morning long so that we, this room is ready for us, we wouldn't have had it, would we? So it takes all of us because it's our calling. So there's Christ, we're disciples of Christ. He's given us a calling, number three. And this takes us into the Sermon on the Mount in a moment. We grow in our personal character. The Sermon on the Mount is about personal character. And we're going to see three of them this morning as we begin to study it. Character is important. So you have Christ, you have calling, and then you have character. And then number four is community. A disciple helps build authentic community. Why is the church called the body of Christ? We are a community, we are a body, we are a group of people that have assembled together. Can you be a Christian and sit on the beach, a follower of Christ and sit on the beach and never talk to anybody? The answer is yes, but that's not what God has called us to do. That's called being a monastic. The monastics did this 1,600 years ago and went into monasteries and didn't talk to anybody, and then finally they realized this is just not the way it should be. Now maybe there are a few people that just need to pray all day long, but the rest of us need to be in community. We can be praying, we can be studying, but we need to be in community. And we talk a lot about that because that's a value here at Boca Community. And then finally, the last C, big word, competency, just to keep it C, that's your gift. That's using the gift Christ gave you in your calling because of your character in community, you need to use your gifts. Leading, volunteering, serving, all these things are so important and that's what discipleship is about. And the Sermon on the Mount is about being a disciple, and it's spoken to us as disciples. So it's talking to followers of Christ who have been called by God, who want to increase their character in community so that they can use the gifts God has given them for the betterment of the community of both the Christian community and the community at large. So it's not just about in here, but it's also about out there. So that's all an introduction. So we start in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five, if you're there. Verse one, seeing the, the crowds, he went up on the mount and Jesus did. And when he sat, his disciples came to him. We talked about that last week. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I'm going to stop there because we'll get the rest of them next week. But you see at the beginning, there's the word blessed. We call these beatitudes. 
What is a beatitude? A beatitude is simply a proverb-like saying attributed to Jesus. It's a proverb-like. Why do I say proverb? Because a proverb is one sentence. A one-sentence thing. And we see that in the book of Proverbs. And Jesus took it that way. And just one sentence. Jesus talked in parables. Remember, parables are long stories. The parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the good Samaritan. The parable of the wheat. The parable. There's all kinds of parables in the New Testament. Jesus would tell a story to get a point across. This is a saying. Just one sentence saying to get across. Now, some of your Bibles say happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And some say blessing. Can I tell you, the right word is blessing. It's not happy. Happy are those who mourn is ridiculous. Happy are the sad. That's kind of, re- I don't think Jesus would say, happy are the sad. That doesn't make sense to me. Blessed. Yeah, so what's the difference between happy and blessed? Happy is something that's subjective. It's a feeling, it's temporary. It's dependent on good fortune. And can I use the word in parentheses so my Presbyterians don't chase me down afterwards by chance. It's more per chance, that's, that's in the Bible. But it's just that, it just happened to be. That's what the word happiness means, it happened. Hap just means it just happened. Let me give you an example. And it's based on, if, if you've got something good, you feel happy. If you've got something bad, you feel sad. This is not what the Beatitudes are about. About 22 years ago, I know this because Elizabeth was pregnant with Anna, who's 22, so it was probably 23 years ago. I was uh, working and I had a series of offices. I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was in business. And one of my senior employees came to me and said, she was a supporter of the arts. And she said, we're doing a big raffle for the arts in Boca Raton. I said, great. I go, I don't do raffles. I don't do lottery. I'm not a big fan of the lottery or anything. And, um, and so I said, how much is it? She said, $25. I said, great, here's $25. Donate it to the arts. I'm all for you, I'm supporting you, but don't, I don't need a raffle. So the event came, day after the event, I get a call from the head of the Arts Council, and Boken says, you've won the raffle. (laughs) Now, I'm thinking it's a joke, but then I realized it was one of my elderly employees, she doesn't joke like that, and I said, whose name is on it? And he gave me my name, my address, my phone number, everything. He goes, you've won. And I said, what have I won? And he said, $25,000. You know, $25, $25,000. I was happy. (laughs) It was a trip. Okay, they weren't giving you the money, they were giving you a trip worth 25,000. This was a trip to Australia, to the Sydney Opera House to hear Marvin Hamlish and the, the Australian Orchestra and then get on a cruise for the arts and travel the whole Western whatever up to Mali and all these things. I said, I can't do that, I got little kids. We can't go and travel for three weeks into the Samoan Islands. And they said, you can do anything you want, anywhere you want for $25,000. 
I said, wow. So Elizabeth and I decided to take a biblical trip, not to Israel, we've been there many times, but to take a trip to Turkey to see Ephesus, which is now Kushadasi, and to Greece and see Athens and Corinth, and then go to Rome and see, you know, kind of Paul's journeys. And so we did that. It was so cool. And we spent $25,000. We couldn't get the money, so we spent it. I was a happy man. <laughs> we were happy. Elizabeth wrote a book on it. If you've read her book on, um, on our story of our son, she wrote that book primarily on that, that three-week event. But we were just a day away. I mean, we, we could get home within a day. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he spoke. He's talking about blessing. What is blessing? Blessing is objective. Blessing is permanent. And here's the key. Blessing is dependent on God's grace in our choices. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You can choose not to be a poor in spirit. We'll get into that in a minute. It's really God's grace, our choices coming together at a point in time and seeing what happens. It's God through Christ discipling us through his spirit, we responding to it for better, or could I say for worse. But if we do it, there's a blessing attached to it. So we're gonna look at this, and as we do, it calls us to mind, I don't know if you've ever heard of the seven deadly sins, have you ever heard of them? Pride, envy, greed, anger, laziness, slothfulness, gluttony, you know, there's all of them, avarice. There's seven deadly sins that have come about over the last, really, about 1,600 years. The three big ones of the seven deadly sins are pride, envy, and greed. And these Beatitudes talk about those three. Can we do that today? Let's look at verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit versus, poor in spirit means humility, versus pride. It's pride versus humility. What is the difference between pride and humility? I'm gonna give you it real simple. I can give you long definitions of these. Pride is this, my will be done. Humility, thy will be done. Your will be done. See the difference? Pride, my will be done. And can I say that almost every sin, I don't think I can think of a sin that doesn't have pride in it. That's why I say it's one of the worst sins because it's the sin that it's about me, it's mine, it's what I do, what I need to do, it's about me, that's pride. And so it's my will be done, and really any other sin also has a little pride in it. And then there's humility, which says your will be done. Humility is a virtue, it is a value that Christ holds dearly. Every book of the Bible of the entire 66 books, maybe with the exception of one of the small one-chapter books, all has something to say about humility or the lack of humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. All these verses are everywhere. But there are two perversions of this, and you need to understand of humility. The first perversion of humility is that humility means I'm a doormat. People can walk over me, I'm the least. You can just, have you ever had somebody walk over you? And have you ever responded, well, I guess I'm being humble about it. 
That is not what humility is. If I can give you a stronger definition of pride and humility, pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Humility is not thinking less of yourself than you ought to think. It's thinking exactly the way you ought to think about yourself. You should think of yourself the way God intended you to be. Do you realize you're a child of the king? Do you realize you're made in the image of God? That is not nothing. That is not a doormat. You are not a doormat. You are a child of the king. Do you see the difference? But you can't do it with pride. So what happens is, you've heard me say this many times if you know me, pride is thinking more highly of yourself. So here, here I am, here you are. I'll make you the proud one. I usually make myself the proud one. So you're proud. So you raise yourself above me, right? And you're saying how good you are and how not good I am. Now I could be the doormat. That's the wrong answer. But here it is. Now, what's interesting is the distance between me and you, you've raised yourself above me, that's called arrogance. If you have a little pride, you're a little arrogant. You have a lot of pride, you have a lot of arrogance. Have you seen somebody and go, boy, are they arrogant? They have a lot of pride. If you say, you know, they got a little arrogance, they have a little amount of pride. None of it is good, but to realize it. Now, you would think that the opposite, me, here, would be then... I just say nothing, you know, I'm a doormat, I'm here, but that's not right either. So if you came up to me today and said, great service today, it really blessed me, I really was excited about it, and I pulled the doormat on you, I would say it was nothing. It was nothing. That's me being a doormat. Well, I would be lying to you that it was nothing. Do you realize 100 people did it? I spent 40 hours before I stood in front of you doing it. It was something. Now, it could have been better, it could have been this, it could have been that, but it was something. You see why? Because if, if you came to me and go, oh, Bill, thank you, God bless you, Clay, or any of these people, or the people in the back, or anyone else, and you go, hey, thank you, and they go, it was nothing, then what they're saying is that what they did was nothing, and you're going, boy, that was something. That's pushing you down, isn't it? That's pushing you down. So when I get up here and sing, just before I stand up here, you see me up here singing, they turn the microphone off. <laughs> because they know their job is contingent on the microphone being off. <laughs> because I can't sing. I have a coach's voice, I'm gruff, and blah, blah, blah. You can't, I can't sing. I mean, I know the words and I can hold a tune, but so I sing here as loud as I want because you'll never hear me. And the minute you do hear me, we'll have some new sound technicians here. <laughs> I'm only kidding, David, you're the best. Why? Because when I go to them and I go, great job, I know what it means to sing well. I took piano, I took lessons, I know what it is. And if they go, oh, it was nothing, they are demeaning and diminishing the gift God has given them. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a person who uses their gifts to the glory of God. And if you're using your gift to the glory of God, then it is something. So what should you have said? You should say, thank you, first of all, thank them for whatever you do, wherever it is, even if it's, you know, you're an engineer, you're a teacher, and someone says, thank you. 
Well, I mean, thank you for what you did. Thank them back. Say, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. But then defer that thanks to God or to other people. And don't just inhale it all. That's pride. But defer it out to the others who helped you get here and to make it. And then that's it. Because if you don't, what you have done is you've pushed that person down. And then you've separated yourself. Unlike this, you're still separated. Do you see that? And that is arrogance. And that is pride. When I separate myself from you because I'm better than you, I am proud, that is wrong. Because blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you say, okay, the second one is this resentment thing. So what happens sometimes is people resent other people's talents, abilities, money, upbringing, et cetera. And so they play off that they're humble as a way in essence underneath that they're resenting the other person. I've seen this a lot. I've seen poor people who are very proud. I've seen wealthy people who are very humble. You see, because pride is not about how much you have. It's what you do with what God has given you. Are you proud about it or are you humble about it? Micah 6, chapter 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I know I say these are all my favorite verses in the Bible, but this truly is one of my favorite. It's a verse that says, he has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, love mercy, and do what? Walk humbly before your God. So I'm a slow learner. So when I was in Israel last time, a couple of years ago, we tried to go every other year, but hasn't worked out the last couple of years. I had it emblazoned on a ring, justice, mercy, and humility. It's in Hebrew, so I don't have to read it up, but I know what it is, and it's here. And every day I put this ring on, my two most important pieces of jewelry, my wedding band, and this ring that reminds me that I must live humbly. My friends, the big sin in the world is pride, and everyone is tempted by pride, but God has said, blessed, the grace of God comes to those who are poor in spirit. Number two, the second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the deadly sin around this is envy, mourning, versus envy. Now, what is envy? This is difficult. I want you to catch this and think about this for a minute. Envy is when I have sorrow at someone else's good fortune. I envy you. You know, you have a bigger house. You have a better car. You have a better job. You have, just name whatever you want to name, and I'm envious of it, which means that brings sorrow to my life at your good fortune. It is a hideous sin. Now, what is mourning? And this is something you got to grab hold of and think about it. Mourning is rejoicing at someone's sorrow. And you go, Bill, you got to explain this one. What does it mean to rejoice at someone's sorrow? This is what it means. What does rejoice mean? Well, Joyce means joy. Re means to come again. 
When I re-enter a room, it's a room I was already in, I am not in it, and I'm going back in it, right? I am re-entering the room. When someone is in sorrow, you have the opportunity to bring back joy in their life, to re-bring back that joy into their life. Do you see that? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, two ways you can mourn with somebody. There's hundreds of ways, but two basic ways. One is sympathy. Sympathy is just the basic, I'm sorry you're going through this. And can I tell you, sympathy is good. It's not the only thing. It's not the most important thing. But some good old-fashioned sympathy is what we need sometimes around this world. Just show some sorrow about what someone else is going through. You may have never gone through it. You may not know what they're going through, but you're just sharing some sorrow over what they are going through because the goal is comfort. You can get comfort. Others can get comfort. The second is empathy, which is I feel your pain. That's the next level. I feel your pain. And out of that, whether you're just sorry someone's going through it or you feel their pain, whether it's your own pain or someone else's pain, you're feeling it and you're gonna respond to it. And that's an important thing. And this is a very difficult thing because mourning happens a lot. Because in this world, we know there will be tears, sorrow, and pain. We know that, right? It's in Genesis chapter three. There will be tears, sorrow, and pain. And with that comes mourning. So let me ask you something. This is a very personal question. You can raise your hand or just nod if you don't want to raise your hand. I can see you. How many of you have been in major mourning in your life? Major sorrow in your life? Raise your hand or shake your head. I see the hands. And it's hundreds of you. Hundreds of you have been through major sorrow and mourning in your life. For those that it didn't occur over the last day or two or week or month, how many of you were able to rejoice again? Raise your hand. See, that is what we're talking about here. I don't know if it's one-to-one or half. It was just a lot of people raising your hand. Why? Because there is joy that comes. The psalm says sorrow comes at night, but joy comes in the morning. There is a joy that can come back. Now, this is an interesting thing. I'm a very geographic person. I just love geography. You can't make a living too easily. At least I couldn't make a living being in geography, so I'm a pastor. I love geography. I just love it. I just get it. I know it. I love it. I pray for you. If I know where you live, I drive by your house and I pray for you. I just love uh, geography. Well, I'm standing in geography here. We're all, we're all people, so we're in geography. In this place, the happiest moment of my life occurred and the worst moment of my life occurred. In this place, where I'm standing, right here, right here. 40 years ago today, I got married to Elizabeth. Best day of my life. Not true, the beginning of the best days of our life. We've had some better days since, but that was the beginning of it. Fantastic. Thank you for loving me. 40 years ago, right here. 
A few years ago, right here, we did the funeral of our son. Right here, right here. His casket was right there. So here I have the joy, the greatest joy of my life. Here I have the greatest sorrow of our life. A 13-year-old dies of a heart attack. Go figure that out. Not supposed to be. And I remember when we were walking out, Elizabeth and me, we were walking out, and she said, will there ever be joy in our life again? Has there been? Absolutely. There has been joy again. So yesterday, I bought her flowers. Yes, man, I bought her flowers. And I bought four bunches for the four decades. I bought a white set of flowers for our wedding day. I bought a purple set of flowers for our children and grandchildren and kind of the progeny and all the rest. But I bought a yellow set of flowers for all the problems we had in our lives. We went broke two recessions ago and lost everything. We lost a son. We prematurely lost her mother. When we were in our 20s, she was in her 40s and had a massive stroke. I mean, there are yellow times in your life, are there not? But then I bought another bunch of roses, the red ones, the ones that you buy to celebrate and the ones that are so beautiful. They were tulips actually, because she likes tulips over roses. And I bought the red ones to signify the joy that has been in our life. There's beauty, there's kids, there's incredible sorrows, and there's joy that comes, is there not? And you are somewhere in that. You might be mourning now, but if you're a disciple, you will be comforted. And I think as disciples, we are to help others to be comforted as well. Third, and last one we'll do today, we'll finish the other. I'm going to skip down to verse 7, where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're going to come back to the other ones, but I'm doing that because the big three sins are pride, envy, and greed. And this one goes against greed. So I thought I'd do the big three sins today and the three responses. So what we have here is mercy versus greed. Greed in the Bible is also covetousness. It's also avarice. There's a lot of names around greed. Greed is greed. So how do we define these? Let me define mercy and then let me define greed. Mercy is this, contentment. And then it is liberality, generosity, and giving to others. Please understand, I'm talking about liberality. Liber means to freely give. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm making a spiritual statement. Liberality means to give. Generosity means to produce in your giving. A generator produces electricity, uh, right? Generations produce children. Generosity produces something with your giving. So you give freely, that's liberality. You give generously, that's to build something out of your giving and you're giving to other people. So many people say, oh, I give to my children. Okay, give to your children. But that's not really giving, that's your obligation. Mercy is when you give unsolicited to other people. What is greed? I use the word double greed because there's two parts to it. Wanting what we do not have. Very similar to envy. It's a sister to envy. 
or a brother to envy, I should probably say, and keeping what we do have. In other words, I want what you have, and I'm going to keep what I have. So what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine. That's greed. I want what you have because I don't have it, and I'm not giving you anything I have because it's mine. That is ultimate greed. Now, I'm a pastor, not a priest, but people come and confess all their sins to me at a lot of times. Pastor, you'll never believe, and, and I'm confidential, and I know all this stuff, and I just leave it in the room. But nobody comes up to me and says, I'm greedy. Pastor, I have the sin of greed. Uh, they do say I have the sin of pride. They do say I'm jealous and envious. They do, then they give me all the other horrendous sins in the world. And I, you know, we pray and we work through them and we leave them at the feet of Jesus and all the rest. But nobody comes up and says, I'm greedy. Can I tell you, this is a sin we all have. It's the 10th commandment. Now, it made the big 10. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not be covetous. And then it goes, what you're not supposed to covet. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Now, what's also interesting, and we don't have time to turn there, so I'll just tell you, Acts 20, write this verse down. Acts 20, verse 32. At the end of Paul's life, Paul's about to die. He's, gonna, he's going, he knows this is the end. He's going through Ephesus. It was his favorite place. He's on the boat, so he sent ahead and said, come out to the docks because he loved the people of Ephesus, the elders, his friends, they were his best friends. That's where John was, the writer of 1st, 2nd John that we've been studying earlier. He's coming out, they're all coming, and when he gets there, he says two things. Remember the word of God. Well, that's obvious, Paul's an apostle. He's gonna say, remember the word of God. And the second thing he says in verse 32 to 35, he says, remember that I never coveted your goods or anything you had. Now, if I was, the last time I would see you, this, this is my last sermon today, if it was, I don't think I would say, I didn't covet what you have. That may, I, I just can't imagine it. Paul did it because Paul knew that coveting is one of the reality sins that none of us talk about. He said, and then he gave a beatitude in it. The only beatitude in the Bible that's not in the gospel, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He talked about mercy. You have a choice. You can be a person of greed, and greed is a, a sin of the heart. It's not a sin of the outside. You don't have to tell anybody you're greedy, right? I can want what you have and never tell you I want what you have. I can keep what I have and never tell you that I'm stingy with my things that God has given me. It's a sin of the heart. So I can sin this sin without you ever knowing about it. But let me tell you how this works out. Mercy. What is mercy? Because we can talk about greed all day, but it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? If I give you $100, I handed you 100 you said, Bill, I need to borrow $100, and I hand you $100. Pay me back when you have it, right? Pay me back when you can afford it. If I forgive you the $100 debt you owe me, that means I must use 100 more dollars of my own money to pay off my responsibilities or my mortgage. I cannot make you really $100 richer 
would make it without making myself $100 poorer, correct? Do you see the math there? If I give you 100, I am out 100. If the debt is objectively real, it must be paid. And if it is by mercy that dismisses your debt, I have to pay for it. You see that? I have committed an act of mercy by telling you, you do not have to pay me back the $100. That is the reason why Christ had to die. Why God could not simply say, forget it to your sins. He didn't say, forget it. What did he say? I am going to forgive it. There's a difference between forgetting it and forgiving it. Forget it means nothing, it's nothing, Donata, it's nothing. Forgiving it means I'm paying for it. I forgive you the $100 debt. I paid for it. Christ is forgiving our debt. He paid for it. And that meant that if we did not pay for our sins, he had to pay for them. So mercy is costly. Look what it costs God, the infinitely precious life of his son. That's what mercy is. God is merciful because he paid for something that cost him. And that was his son, Jesus Christ. He's calling us to mercy every day. Mercy costs something. You know, when, when I'm... Uh, kind to somebody, mournful with something. It doesn't cost me anything, a little time, maybe a little energy, maybe a little emotion. But when I'm merciful, it costs me. When you're merciful, it costs. Being a disciple costs. When you give liberally, it costs. Because when you give it away, you don't have it anymore. Whether that's your time, your money, your energy, whatever it may be that you give away generously, you cannot keep, right? Boy, would it be nice just to keep the money instead of giving it away? Would it be nice not to spend so much time, goodness sakes, with other people? It'd be nice to spend it on myself. But we're people of mercy. We've been called to mercy because Christ was merciful to us. And he paid the ultimate death for our sin so that God the Father could say, forgive it. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Let's pray together.